we get messages saying this person's story is what encouraged me to go get help or this person's story was so similar to mine that I realized that my struggle was legitimate. Um, and so that's been really cool to see and, and just surprised us how many people would be impacted by what we were doing. Welcome back to Need a Week, and this is episode two. Just so you guys know, the theme this week is Come As You Are, Hindsight is twenty twenty, which I think is a really great theme for Nita in general because it allows people to think about you know how they are now, whether that is in recovery, out of recovery, in disordered eating, never had disordered eating, whatever it is, you're welcome and you, you know, matter in this conversation. So the come as you are is such a great theme. And I even like this year they added the hindsight is 2020, which I think is cool because um, it it really is. <laughs> like I know so much more about myself and where I was with my eating disorder now than I did when I was in it. Um and that's because I can look back and I have perspective. So just um, a reminder that there's a greater Nita movement going on, Nita Week out there. So check it out, all the hashtag come as you are posts. Today, our story is from a listener and she wrote in a couple weeks ago um, to share her experience with eating disorders. So I'm going to share that now. She wrote, The seed for my eating disorder was planted when I was just 10 years old and hit puberty. I was still a child and yet was 5 foot 8 inches tall, fully developed and menstruating. My mind could not keep up with my body, and I was plagued with anxiety about being too big. These thoughts percolated in the back of my mind for nearly 5 years until my mother enrolled me in Weight Watchers at 16 years old. As with any first diet, I was immensely successful. I was able to lose a great deal of weight relatively quickly and thought my time dieting was over. Little did I know that this was just the beginning. Counting points quickly turned into not eating, exercising obsessively, and a myriad of other unhealthy behaviors. Because my BMI was not classified as underweight, I was simply labeled as being healthy. In retrospect, I am frustrated that my family and healthcare providers did not realize I was suffering from raging anorexia. And just a side note to her story, this is why the diagnosis changed for anorexia, because the former diagnosis was that you had to be underweight to have anorexia as an eating disorder, and you had to be like 85% of your ideal body weight, whatever that is. So they changed that to address people like this listener And so they can get care and insurance coverage for that care. Um, She continued, My senior year of high school, my Nana, who I was incredibly close to, passed away. And with her death came the start of binge eating disorder. I struggled for nearly a decade with binge eating disorder, oftentimes with anorexia rearing its ugly head simultaneously. No one knew how much I struggled and I felt deep shame at my behaviors. What should what would people say if they knew I regularly skipped meals, that I weighed myself 20 to 30 times a day, that I took laxatives, I felt I ate too much, that I sometimes ate so much food that my stomach felt it was going to explode. I was disgusted with myself, felt helpless to change, and couldn't bear to tell anyone. 
This all changed when I moved in with my now husband. I couldn't hide my behaviors anymore. My husband was terrified that I was going to harm myself. My family tried to intervene and I had persisted and I, I think she meant resisted and I had resisted their attempts to help angry that they were stopping my pursuit of health. One day I ran 18 miles in 90 degree weather and then passed out while running errands shortly thereafter. An ambulance ride and stay in the hospital still were not enough to convince me I had a problem that I needed help with. When I was 29, something snapped. I was scared. I wanted a baby more than anything in the world. I wanted peace with food. I wanted the anxious thoughts about exercise and my body to calm down. I confided for the first time ever to a doctor about my struggles and a care team was immediately implemented to, to support me in recovery. It's been three years since that day and I'm not sure if I can say I am fully recovered, but I'm recovering and that's what's important. And now I have the most important motivation of all, my beautiful daughter. I want to raise her to love her body, have a healthy relationship with food, and to know that she has so much besides her physical appearance to offer the world. She is my constant reminder that recovery is worth it and possible. I'm so thankful for to this listener for sharing her story. Um, it's really representative of a lot of people who often don't think that they're, you know, worth getting care and don't realize that an eating disorder is not the stereotypical clinical eating disorder we think about, that this really is probably, you know, more common than any other type of eating disorder, just constant, constant pressure from diet culture and and struggling with your, your body and, and your food and just constant unhappiness in that regard. So I can't thank this listener enough. Um, if you have a story you'd like to share on one of the coming episodes, please send it in to worthyourwhilenutrition at gmail.com. So worth W-E-R-T-H. And without further ado, I want to get to our guest today. So her name is Alexis Fairbanks. She is the co-founder of the Lane 9 Project, with which is a nonprofit that advocates for women's health, especially eating disorders and um, those in athletes most often, so in the running community. She has another story to share and highlights really another group of people who suffer from disordered eating that aren't always seeking treatment. So the theme of today was those who have disordered eating and don't seek care or don't seek treatment. And she talks all about her year, many years struggling with eating disorder and disordered eating and I think you'll really enjoy her story. So here we go with Alexis. Hi. Hi, Alexis. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So I just want to start with uh, having you introduce yourself to my listeners and then say how you first came to learn about eating disorders? I'm Alexis. I'm a runner. I am a teacher. I'm a coach. And I am the co-founder of Lane 9 Project, which is a nonprofit that advocates for women and women's health, especially in the space of eating disorders and athletes, um, runners in particular. I, I, I think I knew about eating disorders at a pretty young age. Um, Interestingly, when I think about it, I know that I was really into gymnastics when I was young, and so I remember reading about some gymnasts right, yeah. when I was 
probably in middle school, and I knew they had, that was eating disorders was a pretty prevalent thing in that sport. But I never thought of it as something really common. We all know kind of the narrative of a really sick and white woman uh, with an eating disorder that is portrayed in the media. And so I knew about that. Uh, but I don't think I realized it was such a common issue and that it spanned across so many different people, uh, demographics, ages, sports, non-athletes, until more recently in the last probably six, seven years as I've recognized my own struggles and then really opened up to see that it's a really common issue that a lot of people face. So when did you first sort of realize that you had a problem with food or body image? It's interesting because as I get more further removed from my really deep struggles that were most prevalent in college, I realized that the issues I had started earlier than I had originally thought, but I don't think I really recognized what I was dealing with as an issue until after I graduated college and I'd started to recover. I didn't really realize I was going through something when I was in the thick of it. I realized I was really unhappy and I realized that I had a lot of food guilt and I had a lot of food rolls, but I didn't think anything was wrong with that, especially because we're steeped in such a diet culture. It seemed like I was dealing with the same thing everyone else was dealing with. And it wasn't until I started to loosen up on those food rules and start to make some changes that I looked back and was like, wow, that was really not okay. So it wasn't until probably uh, like five years ago, I guess. I'm 28 now. So yeah, probably when I was 23, 24, and I started to kind of crawl my way out of it is when I realized that it was, it had been a really big issue for me for a long time. Is there anything or anyone that you talk to that sort of started that process or made you realize you should change some of what you're doing? Um, I don't think there was really a person in particular, but what happened for me was I moved to D.C. from upstate New York where I had lived my whole life, went to college, uh, and I had my first, you know, big girl job and I was on my own for the first time. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I was doing a lot of things to try to cultivate a social life. So I was going to run meetups that would be a happy hour afterward or like a burgers and beer kind of thing afterward. Um, Was making friends and going to happy hours and things like that. And when you're put in those situations with new people, for me, it kind of forced me to adopt some more normal eating behaviors. I was never a person that would have burgers and fries and a beer after a an easy run on a Monday night. But when I started going to this friend club regularly, that's something I adopted because I didn't want these people to, to realize that I I was not eating, basically. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's like I was kind of forced into adopting more healthy behaviors because I wanted to seem more normal. Right. And I wanted to be able to socialize and go out without the fear of, well, is there going to be anything on the menu that I can eat um, and that kind of thing. And it definitely didn't happen overnight. And there were there were things that I continued to do for a really long time. And there were people who 
I could share kind of the things that I was doing with because they understood. Um, but that took a lot of time. Definitely. Yeah. So going back, it sort of, I guess, started for you when you were in sports and at least got worse when you were running a lot. Um, and so how, yeah. how is it that food is portrayed and body image is portrayed in the running community that you were experiencing? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, the further removed I get from my my deepest struggles, the more I recognize it started earlier than I had thought before. So mm-hmm. when I look back to just high school, um, that's, I started running when I was 12, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I was encouraged by an elementary PE teacher to start running. She had I she had run in college. I actually ended up going to the same college that she went to oh, and wow. running. Um, and she's somebody that I've always really looked up to. And so she encouraged me to run and, and I loved it and I was good at it. But in the running world, it's definitely an image of really thin means really fast. And as I developed in high school, I felt like I needed to make sure that I was just as thin as everyone else on the start line or I wouldn't be able to beat them. And at the time, of course, I felt like I was bigger than everyone else in the start line. And so that really fed into me just slowly adopting behaviors that are definitely characteristic of an eating disorder. So I would do things like I would, quote unquote, forget my lunch uh, mm-hmm. at school yeah. in high school. Um, and so then I just wouldn't eat uh, or I would pack something really, really small, and then I would just drink a ton of water all day. I specifically remember sitting in my one uh, history class in, like, 10th grade. It was right before lunch, and I was always freezing. Uh, I was freezing and I was hungry. And at the time, I didn't think that was a problem. I was actually pretty proud of it um, because I felt like I was doing something right to to be better at my sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, And looking back, that's... Clearly, uh, a disordered behavior that I was that I was engaging in. So, when you got to college and you were, you know, being coached by your school's team, and you were around all these other runners who took it pretty seriously, were there sort of behaviors or other people engaging in sort of the same way of thinking? Yeah. So, I think in high school, I had a really great coach, um, and body image and weight was never an issue um, in the eyes of our coach, but I think it just permeates the running community and young women, even outside of the running community so much that the seed was already planted there. And then I went to college and um, although I ran at the D3 level, it was a pretty competitive D3 team. And again, there was not anything outright Mm -hmm. that, uh, that was, said or done, but there's just a culture of, um, just diet culture in general, just everyone seems to be worried about what they're eating and what they look like and wanting to be thinner and thinking that, you know, we can't eat ice cream before a race or just little things like that. We're, we're constantly around. Um, and for me, as a freshman, I came in performing in my event as the highest on the team so that came with a lot of pressure for me um and and I had a coach who although there weren't outright things said about weight or anything like that um there was certainly different pressure put on different people based on 
how he felt that you could perform. So I, when I was, I had just turned 18 when I started college. And so I was still really young and impressionable and I've always been a people pleaser. So for me going into that situation and having a lot of pressure put on me, being told that by by my sophomore year, uh, I'm going to be an All-American, that should be really positive and motivating. But for me, it was really detrimental and I got this idea in my head that I had to be perfect all the time. Right. Um, yeah. And that's kind of how, for me, I think things continued to spiral because as soon as things weren't going perfectly, I put so much blame on myself and I had started from a young age controlling food and what I ate and how much I exercised. And so that was kind of the thing that I felt like I could control to make myself better, which in the end, completely backfired. Yeah. yeah. As it usually does. So I work at a university right now and, um, I see a lot of athletes who tell me that, you know, on the teams, they feel like everyone doesn't have their period or everyone, you know, does this interesting, like not great behavior when it comes to eating or drinking water or whatever it is. And uh, I have, you know, talked to a lot of students that are saying like, it's just so normal. Like no one would ever say there was a problem if I have this behavior or I don't have my period or whatever it is or getting stress fractures. Was that something you sort of experienced on your team as well? Yeah, totally. I think in terms of the not getting a period, that was always so normal to me. I had so many teammates throughout the years in both high school and college, and none of us thought anything of it. Yeah. Um, and if anything, it was seen as a good thing because it's not something getting in the way of running. It's like you don't have to deal with it. Right, um, yeah. And so it's very, very normalized. And in terms of just eating patterns and over-exercising type of behaviors, those things are super normalized as well. I remember one of my best friends and teammates, we would get home from practice. When we lived together, we would get home from practice and we would sit in front of the TV and we would just do core for like another 30 minutes, just core exercises and Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and just like eating smoothies for dinner, that kind of thing. Um, and because we were all, you know, we weren't just on the team together, but we were best friends and we were living together. And, and so I think there was, um, at least by my junior, senior year, there was definitely some things that we would notice in each other that weren't super healthy behaviors, maybe a little bit problematic, but because everybody had some extent of that nobody was really raising a red flag right um because it was just kind of like this is this is what you do to get better um and it's actually interesting because we spend so much time oh sorry my alarm is going no it's okay i i have an alarm set for um 10 15 every day because some of my students uh, in my first grade class, get coloring time at ten fifteen. If oh. good morning, so <laughs> well, okay, I'll have some coloring <laughs> time. That's fine. Goes, goes off um, randomly, uh, but yeah, what's interesting is we focus so much on women because it's such a common thing in women's sports and women's running. But at my college, my men's team, I remember, was just ravaged with these issues mm. and 
the the guys team was con- they were constantly going on quote unquote water diets and oh my God. they weren't eating carbs or this or that. Um, and I think that influenced us even more because there were times that um, us as the women's team, I think, did do a better job of fueling and eating normally. But then when we would see the men's team and the men's team got a lot of praise from our coach for working really hard and kind of were looked at as the team that was taking things more seriously. And so then a lot of us felt like, well, if that's what is expected of us, we need to do a better job of not right. eating and, and exercising more and, and doing cross-training outside of practice time. So that's really interesting looking back at because I don't think it's talked about or I don't know that that's as common. Um and maybe it is, and it's just we don't hear about it as much. Yeah, I actually recorded another episode that will be in this week that is all about eating disorders in men. And it's incredibly common in athletes for who are men because there's so much pressure to have more muscle. So it's almost like instead of trying to just diminish your body size, it's gaining specifically muscle that they're all very, very stressed mm-hmm. about. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So what would you want all runners to know, like now that you have a little distance looking back um, and you're still a runner and fueling yourself better. So what would you want all runners to know if you could tell them something? Yeah. So if I'm thinking specifically about collegiate runners, I know for me, I have this idea in my head that I have four years to be fast and to be good and I felt like I needed to do anything to get me there um, and so I was kind of that win at all cost mentality which for me backfired very quickly by my sophomore year I had my first stress fracture and I never ran as fast as I had as a freshman again um, until like this past year I'm 28 now and I ran a 5k PR I ran a half marathon PR um, and those are things that I never thought I would be doing. And so I think it's important as young athletes to zoom out and think about, because this is something you want to be doing long-term. If you want to run past your four years in college, you need to think about what is going to set you up to be able to continue running. Um, and so putting yourself in a position where you're dealing with um, disordered eating, you're dealing with reds, you're getting injured, you're underfueling in whatever the case may be, you're not going to be able to run long-term. Um, and so you really have to realize that you have to put your health first. Um, and running, again, is such a long-term sport that you might not hit your peak or your potential in in those four years in college because that's not what everyone's body is made to do. Um, and we've seen, especially with female distance running, recently it, the, the elite runners have proven to us that we're, we don't peak when we're 21, 22 years old. Yeah. Um, we peak much later. And I think it's really important for young athletes to recognize that and to realize that if they want to be running fast and even just running at all when they're in their late 20s and beyond that in those years from, you know, 18 to 21, 22, when you're in college, you really have to take care of yourself um, or you won't be able to run later on in life. It's so funny that you you said that because 
yesterday, I literally told my husband that I it's okay that I'm not running as much right now because I'm a little bit injured from my hamstring um, because I'm only 24. So I have so much time to do better. <laughs> um, yeah, and, so but, much time. Yeah. And that's definitely not an outlook. I think most people who are competitive in college have. Yeah, and I mean, even just a couple of years ago, I um, it was summer of 2016, I think. I had run my first Boston, and I had a, a tear in my hamstring, and so mm-hmm. I had to take, like, three months out. I've had three stress fractures, but I actually took more time off for the hamstring um, yeah, it's not fun. than That's I, what have I have for right anything now. else. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's so painful, like, you can't even sleep. Um, and so I remember being really upset and frustrated and kind of going crazy because it was over the summer too. Um, and I, I was 20, that was four years ago. So I was 24. I was your age right now. And I was really worried about like losing out on, on the few years that I thought I had to become a faster marathoner because for some reason I still had it in my head that I was going to peak at like 25, 26 in the marathon. And as I mentioned, now I'm 28, and this fall I ran a huge both 5K and half marathon PR, and I'm currently training for um, Boston this year, and I'm running faster training runs than I ever have in my life. And I think I'm finally, I've finally been convinced that like <laughs> I'm not ready to peak yet, and it's just kind of getting started. Yeah, um, and I think that if I had learned that lesson earlier, I probably would have taken a lot better care of myself along the way yeah well that's good to hear and I'm so glad that you're you know doing well um now and have learned have learned that yeah yeah Um, I mean it's a hard lesson to learn and I think it takes a lot of um personal experience and hopefully the more people that share their experience the less personal experience other people will need um because it is rough (laughs) to be injured over and over again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I just have um, two last questions. So one, um, I know you started Lane 9 a few years ago now, maybe like four years ago. Um, And what have you learned from that experience and just seeing so many women like open up about their their struggles? Yeah, um, the story of Lane 9 is, I love it because Heather and I, along with Sam, who used to work with us, uh, we kind of met randomly. I met Heather through a, a assignment I had for grad school. And for some reason, it was just one of those people that you meet and you could tell that there was something in common. And so I did this little interview I had to do for my class. And then we just got chatting about running. And somehow we both very quickly opened up about our own experiences with disordered eating and running and, and injuries, that kind of thing. And within, you know, the 30 minutes of that conversation, we were both like, we need to stay in touch and we need to do something about this. And we had no idea what it was that we were going to do. And we we brought Sam along and the three of us kind of just shared our stories and we're like, had no idea if anyone would respond at all. We didn't know what we were doing. We still kind of don't know what we're doing. We're trying to figure it out as we go. Um, But we were just blown away by how many people had similar stories and how many people wanted to talk about it Mm -hmm. Um, because it's so stigmatized and it feels like everyone wants to be hush-hush about it. 
But what really surprised us was how immediately when we shared our stories, we had people emailing us and sending us messages saying, I want to share my story too. And that wasn't what we anticipated doing with Lane 9. Um, and that's pretty much become the main thing that we do is share, is share other stories. Um, and so it's really cool to see how many people want to open up and talk about it. It's cool to see how therapeutic that is for a lot of people, how um, kind of just getting it out in the world is so freeing for so many people. Um, and then just hearing the stories of people who read someone else's stories, whether it's mine or Heather's or just a random person who submitted their essay to us or talked on our podcast, um, we get messages saying, this person's story is what encouraged me to go get help or this person's story was so similar to mine that I realized that my struggle was legitimate. Um, and so that's been really cool to see and, and just surprised us how many people would be impacted by what we were doing. Yeah, for sure. And I actually met one of my best friends in Connecticut when I moved here through Lane 9 which is oh that's so cool yeah so random like I was moving up here and I was like I wonder if anyone in the group is uh from Connecticut because I know it's mostly in the DC area and so I just looked and there was like one other girl who had put in her name from Connecticut and I emailed her and, and she was like oh I'm just moving there too like don't know anyone at all so that was a really cool um, experience. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. And she's so funny because she was just like, I don't even know how I found the group. Like, I was in Maine. Like, I just found it on Facebook. That's so funny. Oh, well, that's so good to hear. I love that. Um, awesome. So, my last question that I ask everyone is just to make things more positive about food since a lot of people who listen are currently struggling or have someone in their family struggling with an eating disorder. So, what is your favorite food? Pizza. Pepperoni pizza. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the fastest to answer ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, pizza in a glass of wine. I can't eat it, like, almost every day. I won't say every day because I might get a little bit sick of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, I just love pizza so much. And it's not, like, a fancy food or anything, but it's Is there a particular favorite. place like, you like best, or do you make it yourself, or...? Um, so there's a lot of places I like. I'm from upstate New York, and even mm -hmm. though it's not New York City, we still have pretty good pizza there. Um, but my boyfriend really likes to cook, and mm -hmm. he recently got into trying to perfect pizza, and he's been making his own dough. Um, and so in the last few weeks after my long run, we haven't even gone anywhere, but he's made some really excellent pizza. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I'm just encouraging him to keep getting better <laughs> and improving upon his pizza making skills so that I can just have pizza forever. <laughs> yeah, that's a great call. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, have a great week. You too. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people find the show. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for episodes you'd like to hear, please send them to worthyourwildnutrition at gmail.com. Have a wonderful day.